Our scripture passage today is Revelation 21, verse, uh, the full chapter, 21 through 22, 5. But I will be reading for us Revelation 21, verses 22, and then chapter 22, verse 5. So I'll be reading through those verses. Hear the word of the Lord. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor to anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only to those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no lamp or a sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. And I don't think I'm about to share any breaking news with you, but I do just want to sit in this moment where we together acknowledge what I'm about to say. This is the last Sunday of 2020. The last Sunday, folks. 2020, that's a wrap. And as we begin our time together, I want to share a bit of an extended reflection with you. And it will end up leading us back to our scripture passage for today. Let me share with you a few examples of just the many phrases, hopeful phrases, I've heard people say and seen written on Facebook and heard sung in worship songs in the midst of life's challenges and tragedies during 2020. Let me read these to you. See if you recognize them. The best is yet to come. Everything has a purpose. Everything happens for a reason. You know good will come from this. Things always get better. Things always end up working out for good. God will bring you out of the storm. Just have faith. And here's a worship song title. Into the sea, it's going to be okay. These are but a few of the many examples of phrases I have been told or heard others say or heard in worship lyrics and in the midst of life's challenges and tragedies during 2020. And they all sound nice, right? They're hopeful. And I've been offered, I've been in numerous conversations where someone with genuinely caring and kind intentions, they offer me one of these phrases or or something to the same effect. And when I respond, I often smile, I nod, and I try to sound encouraged, but I'm slightly hesitant. And I say, you know, I hope that's true. I hope the best is yet to come. Deep down, I know that these phrases don't offer me real, tangible hope. 
Let's put the particulars of the Christian faith aside for the moment. I've observed in just my small world, the world around me, that people of all religious bents can tend to live and operate in this state where their collective conscious relies on some sort of ethereal reality that they can't really name. So you can call it God, call it spiritual forces, call it karma, call it the power of positive thinking and manifesting your reality, or call it something else. I see this assumption manifest and express itself in various ways, that there is some inherently good benevolent force that we are confident we are joined to. And so things will eventually work out for our good. Or we can make things good in our lives if we just manifest it enough. Or we can make things good if we join ourselves or align ourselves with the good in the universe and its vibrations. We find security and comfort in pat phrases that we tell ourselves and that we tell others in their moments of crisis. In the course of 2020, it seems like many of us have experienced moments, moments of crises. Many people have experienced difficulty and tragedy. People have struggled. I have struggled. COVID has taken lives. It has disrupted lives, work, and economies. The racial wounds of our country have been re-exposed this year. Our nation has been completely polarized around an election. And if I'm honest with you, I have found no simple answers in 2020. All the answers I've found are complex. All of 2020 has been consequential and much of 2020 has been intensely personal. I think that's the case for all of us. And in the course of my conversations with both Christians and non-Christians, if people know that my vocation is a pastor, then people assume I operate with the hope embodied in those phrases that I listed before, like the best is yet to come or, um, at, or, or something else. Or at the very least, they think that the hope that I preach in this moment is, is something like that. I mean, what else would faith be for anyway? Doesn't the Bible say God works all things out for good? Doesn't the Bible say God is in control? Can't we have comfort in the fact that God will bring us out of trial and that circumstances will eventually get easier? Sometimes God tests us, right? If we keep the faith, we'll get through it and we'll understand the reason behind what happened. Well, as someone trying to understand the Christian faith that I profess, and as a pastor, I'm I'm actually convinced that the Christian faith and the Christian God does not directly align with the statements, the best is yet to come, or everything happens for a reason. I don't think the Christian faith and the Christian God aligns with those statements as we commonly understand those phrases. Do I think God works things out for the good in the lives of the people following Jesus? Yes, I do. I do believe that. But I think that is often a complex reality. And it's not a simple blanket statement that takes care of difficulty. The Christian faith and the Christian triune God does not promise in Scripture that the best is yet to come or that everything happens for a reason as we tend to make simple claims or simple sense of those statements. 
And think about it. Consider with me for just a second. Jesus, God himself, was crucified and in an earthly sense died as a failure on a cross. Think with me about the lives of the men who were closest to Jesus, the 12 disciples, the apostles. How did their lives end? Well, 10 out of 12, tradition says, were martyred for their faith. Does that seem like the fulfillment of the phrase, the best is yet to come? There's no guarantee in the Bible of perpetual blessings, of everything making sense to us, or the the best is yet to come in the lives of those who follow Jesus and put themselves on the side of God. Sure, there is God's blessing at times, but there is also God's discipline at times. You might be thinking, Ben, this is a terrible way to start a sermon. (laughs) And in some ways, I, I agree with that. What am I driving at? Essentially, I'm trying to name two types of false hope. And I want to name those false hopes so that we can make our way towards a biblical hope. One false hope is offered to us by our comfortable Western Middle America world. And that's the hope that things always work out for good. Or that we can make things work out for good. It's a sense that we are somehow in control. And the second false hope exists culturally within some Christian circles. It's the false hope that with Jesus, the best is yet to come in our lives. It's interesting because best does also seem to be be defined by the same promise our middle American Western world seems to offer us. And this is that things will always work out for good. Just now, Jesus somehow fits into that equation. So it's basically American culture plus sign, Jesus. These false hopes, they are cultural. They aren't biblical. And the Bible, unlike those false hopes, has a sense of realism about it for Christians who believe in Jesus. You see, the Bible is realistic. But it's not melancholy. It's not an Eeyore. It's not cruel. The Bible is none of those things. What the Bible does is it offers us a real, coherent grasp of the reality of our world. And precisely because that, the Bible offers us real hope in the midst of it. It offers us hope that we can actually wrap our arms around. A hope that gives us solid ground for our faith to stand on. A hope that we can embrace, that gives us joy in the midst of life's difficulties. It gives us an alternative, a real, true alternative to pat phrases. The Apostle Paul knew of and he embraced this hope. Let me read to you the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans. Romans 8, this is what he has to say about the hope that we have as Christians. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings, they are not worth comparing with the glory that will be be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought to the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning 
as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. You see, Paul thinks heaven is very much worth hoping for. And in essence, he says, all of creation, including us, we are waiting, groaning, and hoping for it. We feel that in our bodies. Creation feels that to its core. And so this very final Sunday of 2020, I want to talk about this hope of heaven, a biblical hope. I want to talk about the all will be made right hope. I want to talk about the God with us for eternity hope. The one, the one day we will be liberated from all bondage and decay hope. The all things will be reconciled to God hope. The creation is no longer frustrated and no longer groaning, but it is fully renewed and restored hope. This is the hope of glory that Paul is talking about here. And ultimately, this is the hope that we Christians have. It's the hope of heaven. The locus of our hope. And the horizon line for our vision, it points us to heaven. We will see, just as the Apostle Paul saw and embraced in Romans 8, that heaven is worth hoping for. Heaven is worth hoping for. In our scripture passage from Revelation 21 through 22, it shows us three reasons why heaven is worth hoping for. And the first reason is this. Heaven will be the most joyous wedding. Heaven will be the most joyous wedding. Our scripture passage, passage Revelation 21, uh, chapter 21, the whole of that chapter through 22, verse 5, is perhaps the greatest image of new creation and the new heavens and the new earth in the whole Bible. Because we finished a series in Revelation and then we moved on into a series on heaven, we've begun to familiarize ourselves with Revelation, but we are often too daunted to approach it. And look with me at Revelation 21, verse 2. John says this, in this ecstatic vision, he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The image that John gives us of heaven and, and is that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And, and what does this mean? What does it mean that heaven and earth, they're coming together like a wedding ceremony? Well, it seems to me that John is suggesting to us that heaven and earth are not needing to be separated forever. They're not needing to be kept at different ends of the cosmos. John isn't also suggesting that heaven and earth are essentially the same thing. And he says that they're just, you can call one, uh, one thing and, and just look at it a different way and, and call it another thing. No, it's not like that. It's not like you can... Look through one lens and you see earth and then look through another lens and you see heaven. John is telling us that these are two very different entities. They're very different characteristics. These things are radically different. And yet, they are made for each other. Just like a man and a woman are two different humans 
They have different characteristics. They are radically different, and yet they are made for each other in the ceremony, in the wedding ceremony. Heaven and earth are ultimately made for one another. They're made to be joined as one. And if you think back to Genesis 1, the creation of male and female together is what reflects the image of God in the world. It's why he made both male and female. And as John is seeing his vision and he's connecting that with rich symbolic imagery from the first chapter of the Bible, he says that the cosmic union of heaven and earth is like that of the union of male and female coming together as one. Heaven is a bride adorned for her husband, earth. John clearly has a wedding ceremony in mind. That's what he's referring to. And I challenge you just to do some research into history and geography throughout time and cultures. Wedding ceremonies have always and consistently been places of joyful celebration. I heard one writer say that the definition of joy is movement in unison with one another. Joy is, joy is common movement, and that makes sense when we think about weddings because there's always dancing at weddings, isn't there? People moving in unison, in celebration with one another. No matter the culture, that seems to consistently happen. And N.T. Wright, this New Testament scholar at Oxford, he, he says this about Revelation 21. He says, we notice right away how drastically different this is from all those would-be Christian scenarios in which the end of the story is the Christian going off to heaven as a soul, naked and unadorned, to meet its maker in fear and trembling. This is the ultimate rejection of every worldview that sees the final goal as the separation of the world from God, of the separation of the physical from the spiritual, of earth from heaven. It's the final answer to the Lord's prayer, that God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth will be this cosmic union of two things made for one another, becoming one, and all things moving, moving in unison together with God. Heaven will be absolutely the most joyous wedding celebration and ceremony. The heaven will also be a light-filled city. If you look at the end of Revelation 21 and then in the beginning of Revelation 22, you'll see a similar refrain pop up a number of times. And the refrain goes something like this. The city will need no source of light because God of glory will be its light. The glory of God will be its light. And this is truly a peculiar statement by John. Some of you might be thinking, but I thought the new heavens and the new earth would be here, right? And that means we would still need the sun for light. Or, or does this truly mean that God will then be the source of all their light? And I want to add before I attempt to answer those questions and we, and we get into the second point that I, I want to name that I've spoken today and will continue to relying heavily upon the metaphors of a wedding and now a city. And this is ultimately the figurative language that John uses in apocalyptic literature to describe and clue us into the reality that heaven is very much still shrouded in mystery. The Bible in John here in Revelation is not 
clear about everything that we would like to know about heaven. It's not. But we can trust it with that and try not to extrapolate more from it than what God saw was necessary for us to have. And so with that said, I'll try to answer that question. Does this truly mean that God will be the source of our light? And there may or may not be a sun in the new cosmos. I don't know. But most likely what John is saying to us, he's using figurative language that he has used in nearly everything else in this vision throughout Revelation. And he's saying to us that it is God's glory that is so grand that it can't be compared to any other source of light in the old creation or even in new creation. It's so much different. It's so much greater. It's so much better. Let me give you an example of this. Seasonal depression is totally a a real thing for me. (laughs) Just this last week, I was on a phone call with a friend and I was complaining about how much less sunlight there is in the winter as compared to the summer. Uh, And we were joking about it and, and having a bit of a laugh. But when the time changes, I wake up and it's dark for quite some time and then When I get home at night, it's dark really early too. And in the winter, it just becomes clear to me that I rely on the sun for a certain amount of satisfaction and enjoyment and just overall well-being. I I enjoy the summer. I enjoy the sunshine. It impacts me when I don't have it. And the point that John is making is that right now we do need the sun for satisfaction. We need it for enjoyment. We need it for overall well-being. But in the new creation, when God's presence and His glory is right before us and with us, it will totally take away that need and blow out of the water that satisfaction that we had previously put in the sun and needed from the sun. Nothing compares to God's glory. And it is by His presence with us that we are fully satisfied. Another key part of this light-filled city, is that there is no need for a temple. You might have caught it in Revelation 21, verse 22, when I read it at the beginning of our time. John says it, so we can't miss it. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. In Jerusalem, the temple was designed to be a place to point to and a symbol for the presence of of God himself, but in the new heavens and the new earth, the reality of God is here. It's with us, and so there's no need for a temple. Like when the real deal is right in front of us, there's no need for a signpost to offer us a direction to it. We have God himself with us. And so in some ways, this new creation, in this new creation, we we don't need the old categories and old placeholders of the old creation. There's no need for a temple. We have God's presence. God is fully with his people, and his glory offers them full satisfaction. So heaven will be be a light-filled city where God's presence is fully with his people. And heaven will also be, it'll be a joyous wedding where heaven and earth, which were made for each other, become one. And last, heaven will be this utopia of pleasure. Heaven will be the utopia of pleasure. What do I mean? What do I mean by that, that heaven will be a utopia of pleasure? Well, on the surface, this point is a little bit more confusing than my previous ones, but it's just as prevalent in our scripture passage today. 
And there's a scholar that did work on the, the features of Jewish utopias at the time of the New Testament. And it's fascinating. He discovered that Jewish utopias, they involved these things. They involved wealth, the temple, rivers and water, wine and food, pleasant fragrance, fragrances, music and light, great weather, peace, fellowship, society, plenty of work for each person, and last, the presence of God. And then he examined Revelation 21 and 22. And what did he find? Nearly identical themes. Heaven, he discovered, is the utopia of pleasure. Scott McKnight, in his book, The Heaven Promise, he says this, Heaven is a world of happiness, a world of intense pleasures, a world of deep joy. Heaven is designed for people who yearn for that kind of happiness, that kind of pleasure, that kind of deep joy. And he goes on to use his imagination for examples. He says, the thrills, heaven is the thrills of an intimate relationship, the profound care expressed by family, the glorious nature of a sunset, the smell of freshly grown tulips, the satisfaction of great food and wine. These are ecstasies that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Life's pleasures, success at work, a good meal, a beautiful song, a splendid aroma. These are the great joys of the new heaven and the new earth. See, heaven is not designed for those who fear joy and pleasure and happiness, nor for those who deny such pleasures. Heaven is designed for those who relish pleasures and long for more. And I think that makes a lot of sense based on how we are wired today, how we are wired right now. Go with me here. Augustine was a church father in the early church and he had this pithy line. It's kind of snarky. He said, it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that men desire to be happy. It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that men desire to be happy. And he's right, right? We all want to be happy. What do we find ourselves chasing after for happiness? We chase after pleasure. We end up following our desires, right? We aren't naturally stoics who are indifferent to pleasure and, and, and who don't chase it. We, we do. Our desire for pleasure bubbles up out of us like it's pre-existent within us. And maybe it is. You know, five weeks ago when I started this series, I, I said our desire for pleasure points us to heaven. It is pre-existent within us. And I absolutely believe that's true. C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature at Oxford and a Christian writer, and he writes about this in a number of his works, including Mere Christianity. He says that all of our deepest longer, longings, all of our deepest desires, and he goes through a number of them, the desire for beauty, love, sex, the desire to be known and be successful. All of these things, if we follow them to the ends of that desire and we do what they want us to do, we will become conscious of the fact that we have desires the natural world cannot satisfy. If we follow those desires to the end, we will ultimately be left unsatisfied. And maybe you've experienced that in some way shape, or form. So C.S. Lewis asks, because of that, is there any reason 
to suppose that our reality now does not actually offer us a way to satiate or quench our desire? Could it be that those desires point us to another place? Could it be that they are a placeholder for a place that we haven't yet been, a place that we will indeed, that will indeed offer us the true end to our desire? Lewis makes the argument that we are made for heaven and that our desires which are, are, are to point us to heaven and they often express themselves now by wandering around and becoming attached to things that are just rivals of what is ultimately the place where our true desires will be fulfilled. All the contemporary pleasures that we experience today are designed by God to point us to the culmination of those pleasures in heaven. Lewis says this, and this is the last long quote of the sermon, I promise. Hang with me. It's worth it. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care and on the one hand, never despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never mistake them for something of which they are only a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive my, in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. You see, heaven will be a utopia of pleasure. A utopia is really a place of, of full and lasting pleasure. A place where we can unashamedly enter into our desires. And we will be able to do that in heaven. Because we will no longer be concerned with putting ourselves at the center of our desire. God will be at the center of our desires. And no longer will our desires attach themselves to things that aren't ultimate. Our desires will attach themselves to God. We will be drinking deeply of the joy of being known by God and knowing Him. With God at the center, all of our pleasure will lead toward Him instead of away from Him. All of our pleasures, all of our happiness will be aimed at Him, not away from Him. And all of our pleasures will not just be our pleasures, they will be joined in and attuned with God's pleasures. That's heaven. Heaven is a utopia of pleasure. And as we're closing our time, after all that I've just shared, you might have the question, Ben, what does this mean for us now? And I would say that there's a number of ways this could be significant for each of us in our own ways. But I want to come back to where I started and I want to ask us this question. Where is our hope? Does our hope rest in false promises? These false hopes, hopes given to us by our culture and given to us by a knockoff cultural version of Christianity. 
Or is our hope informed by our vision of heaven? Heaven is worth hoping for. Heaven is where God will be with us for eternity. It's it's where all things will be made right. Heaven is where one day we will be liberated from all bondage and decay and all things will be renewed. And I quoted the Apostle Paul in Romans at the beginning. and And I did this because he was formed by his understanding of heaven. And this is what Paul says to us about the place we find ourselves now. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. So how do we live now? Well, first, those of us who have the Holy Spirit, I would say we should attune ourselves to the groaning as we wait. I don't mean that we should live in pain. No. I actually mean the opposite. I mean that we, should, we shouldn't tune out the groan or try to squelch it or become apathetic. We shouldn't find ourselves looking to other places, worldviews, or ends to our desires that offer answers that won't actually satiate our desires or questions. No. We need to get comfortable with the groaning within us. It points us and directs us to the joy that we have now in Christ and will have in full in heaven. Recognize that this is pointing us, pointing you toward heaven. And let God foster that focus on heaven within you. Let him mold it within you. God will use it. He will use it not only to keep your horizon line on heaven and your locus on heaven, but just as importantly, he will use it so that you are an avenue now. You are a channel now where God brings the joys and the pleasures and the peace of heaven to earth today by his spirit which is deposited within us. And that leads me to my my second application. We have the first fruits of heaven within us. Paul says this, and what he means is that we have God's Spirit who was given to us by Jesus, who was born of Mary and the Holy Spirit and was crucified and raised to life. And when Jesus ascended into heaven as a symbol of his ultimate rule and authority, he left us his spirit to be our counselor, our guide, and to be God's very presence with us. May we learn that this deposit Jesus left us, his own spirit, is our taste of heaven for today. Yes, God gives us the hope of heaven, But he also gives us a taste of heaven to satisfy our longings each day. My hope is that as a community following Christ, we can individually and collectively, by God's Spirit, take small steps to understand that God's Spirit is the daily bread that God gives us each day. May we rest in that hope, the hope of heaven and the hope that we have in God's Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your hope. God, you give us real hope through your word. May we be formed by that hope. May you form us by your spirit. Make your fruit ripe in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon us. Amen. And now we've 
we move on into our time of communion. And I'm reminded that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are joined to a community of those who are united in the hope of heaven. And every time we partake, we are praying, hoping, and desiring to once again be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me read into your hearing the words of institution from Paul in in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.